On this episode of the Chillinoy Podcast, I sit down with Danielle Perry. Danielle currently serves as the Illinois Cannabis Regulation Oversight Officer. As I send you into today's conversation, I think it's important for you to have something to reference. And that something is the Cannabis Regulation and Tax Act. If you didn't know, the Cannabis Regulation and Tax Act, or the CRTA, is the reason that the possession of small amounts of cannabis by residents and non-residents is now decriminalized. It's also the reason that you can legally purchase cannabis, small amounts, from state-ordained dispensaries and cultivators. The CRTA also created the office of the CROO, which is the Cannabis Regulation Oversight Officer. That position is currently being fulfilled by Danielle Perry, who once again is the guest on today's show. And I think it's really important as you listen to today's show to reference the CRTA. I'll put a link into the show notes. Uh, So if you look in the podcast show notes, you'll find a link to the full text of the CRTA. And if you search within the CRTA, like I'm doing right now, if you can't see my screen, just go to chillinoy.net slash YouTube to watch the video version of our podcast. If you search for cannabis regulation oversight officer inside of the CRTA, you'll be able to find Um, where the position is created, how they appoint the position, what the position has the authority to do, what the position uh, shall not do, um, and more. I think it's very important for you to have this as reference as you listen to this episode of the Chillinoy podcast. Before I send you into our interview, I want to remind you that our show is brought to you by listeners like you. If you go to chillinoy.net slash support, you can easily make a one-time monthly or yearly contribution, and that's of any amount. So as you can see, you can choose $5, $15, $100, or you could put in $1, right? Um, your contribution is appreciated. Your contribution helps us afford hosting fees to distribute our content and equipment to capture our content. And there are other ways to contribute. Uh, we're Chillinois State on Cash App, and we will continue to pop up on other platforms. So if you want to show your support for the Chillinois podcast, just go to chillinois.net slash support and enjoy this episode with Danielle Perry. Hey, Danielle, how's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. So folks may know you, folks may not. Um, I want to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself to the audience of the Chillinois podcast. Thank you. So my name is Danielle Perry. I am the Cannabis Regulation Oversight Officer for the state of Illinois. Long title basically means I'm responsible for overseeing all the agencies that work in cannabis. And uh, thank you so much uh, for your time today. It's really an honor and a privilege um, I've been so excited uh, for this show for, for many reasons, but the number one reason is to just like meet you and who you are because you have a really cool job, if I might say so myself. May not feel that way all the time. Um, you know, I know that you guys, you, I mean, I'm under the impression that you have like there's multiple facets to your job. And so that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on to the show. Um, you know, I'm aware of some of the things that like some of the things that you might do. Um, But I think it's important to talk about what you do do and what you do not do. I think more importantly, because there's a lot of like uh, frustration nowadays. And it's like, why doesn't somebody just do this? And it's like, well, 
there's a lot of things that we're bound to. Um, one of the things being the Cannabis Regulation and Tax Act, the CRTA. You know, it's just a matter of fact, that's the law that was passed. And so basically everything that's happened has been more or less in accordance to law. You know what I mean? Um, right. So yeah, uh, before we talk about though your position, um, I wanted to like back up and just introduce, like, like I say, just talk about you yourself. Um, I'm a, from what I understand, you're local to Illinois. Am I native of the Chicagoland area? Yeah, I grew up in Flossmoor. I went to home with Flossmoor High School, go Vikings, and super local. I grew up in the south suburbs of Chicago, basically between South Holland and then eventually Flossmoor. And um, my dad grew up here uh, in public housing, 44th and Cottage. You know, really, my whole family lives here. And um, my mother is from D.C., so my roots are actually kind of twofold. Uh, I'm, but my family basically lives here. Cool. So if, if you can, can you give me a highlight reel of, of where of how you got to where you are today? We'll share your bio, you know, for folks that would like to read the bio. Um, but but yeah, I'd just like to hear it from you. How, how do we get to where we are today? Absolutely. So we talked about HF and Home of Flossmore. So after that, I went to college in Washington, D.C. at Howard University, which is a historically black uh, university in Washington, D.C. I basically worked on the Hill all through college and was in student council, was president of undergrad and all that, you know, all that good stuff, normal political nerd. And after college, I went straight through to law school. I went to Howard University School of Law as well and went right back to the Hill, interned on the Hill. I actually interned both times for Congressman Jesse Jackson Jr., who at the time was our congressman. So that was a really great experience and my entree into learning about government. Um, I was actually working for my congressman back when I was a youngster in D.C. I, after leaving law school, I actually moved here to Illinois just for a little bit. I took the Illinois bar and passed, worked uh, for the Cook County Forest Preserve for a little bit as a young lawyer. And, and then I love D.C. so much, I had to go back. So I worked the Obama campaign as the African-American Outreach Director for Obama, D.C., and uh, then I worked on Capitol Hill for years for then Congressman Chris Van Hollen, now Senator Chris Van Hollen. Um, and I had issue areas that range from Social Security. Really, healthcare was a big thing because the Affordable Care Act passed when I worked there. So it was a huge thing of figuring out how to make sure people got access to healthcare. And because healthcare was my issue area, that was one of the major things that I did um, during that time. But after, after leaving the Hill, I went on to work for the presidential administration at the time that was President Barack Obama. And I was appointed to work for the Department of Agriculture in the Office of Civil Rights, which was really eye-opening for me. I learned a lot about just the, the years and decades of discrimination by the Department of Agriculture. And what the work that we did in civil rights was we really tried to proactively go back into those same communities that were often discriminated against in history and build relationship, make sure that they knew USDA was an access point, um, that we started to break down the barriers of entry basically into uh, being able to use USDA as, as an access 
access or support, which was a huge support for farmers across this country, just not black and brown uh, or native either. So <clears throat> one of the things I did was we ran a community garden initiative across the country for communities that barely had any access for food. Uh, we put them in all over from Portland to native communities in Arizona to Philadelphia uh, to even Chicago. So I traveled, I would say almost 80% or 90% of the job. But we I also ran a civil rights conference nationally, which was sponsored by USDA and um, the Department of Transportation and, and SSA at the time worked with other agencies to bring in civil rights practitioners from across the federal government. I worked on limited English proficiency, just a lot of civil rights issues at AG. And AG is a huge agency. So I, I really got my, I, I would say my feet wet in learning how intergovernment works and how to work amongst different, USDA is huge. So all the different departments, it feels like one state agent, like, you know, the whole state in this one federal government department. So it was a lot of work, but I learned a ton, specifically about egg and civil rights. Um, but when I was there, I always felt like you need to go home. There was so much happening at home here. And um, it was really like around the Laquan McDonald shooting and the video release. And sometimes when you're, you, you, you study up to come home and bring your talents back home to feed into the community that you came from. And when I was in DC, I would say that second time, that's the feeling I had. It's like, you should be at home. You should be doing what you can there. So I started applying um, when the administration was ending and I ended up coming home to work for the city inspector general who at the time you know like all inspector generals responsible for waste fraud and abuse but uh, also at the time Joe Ferguson was the inspector general and he had been given oversight of police policing generally in the city, police reform, police accountability. He had COPA, the police board and the police department. And you, the inspector general at the time, you know, if you know anything about IGs, it's usually a secretive sleuth place where no one knows where their office is. Nobody calls them. So they really brought me in because of my experience in community engagement and the work I had done in community over the years to help them to start having more of a public face. And that's exactly what I did. Hired a team. They, they literally had no public face. They would put out reports on their website and that was it. We started doing community events, community hearings. We went around and met with community leaders. We started giving our reports and, and actually presenting them to community. We had listening sessions on police accountability. We, we branded and actually created information so people could come in and tell us about problems they were seeing. One of the challenges I saw there, one of the things I tried to do there was when they would decide what they would audit or investigate, it was all amongst the people who worked in the IG's office. And these people usually come to government in the exact same way. Like the things they were mad about is like bike lanes or recycling, because that was their world. But, you know, I thought, why don't we start engaging community around what they're seeing is wrong with government? There are people who interface with city government every single day. It's just not you. And so why don't we start interfacing with them to give us an idea of what we should audit and then bring experts from community about those issues. And that's one thing that they're still doing to this day at the Inspector General, which I love, which is getting a lot more community feedback into their auditing and review process. That was one of the things I did. We also did legislative briefings. So a lot of times the IG would put out reports and then it would just kind of be on the website. 
So now <clears throat> one of the things we did was started briefing legislators on the work of the inspector general so that they could then make legislation based on those things they were learning. So just bringing it full circle and making it just a lot more uh, public facing in every sense of the word, not just from community and branding, but even legislative. Um, so I left there actually when the consent decree came down and Lisa Matting and started working on police accountability. I felt like the whole, all the work I was doing, they were going to do whoever that consultant was who was brought in. So I made a move. I became the executive director of Growing Home, which is on the south side in Inglewood. It was a job program right in the middle of Inglewood um, for people who were interested in getting back into the workforce, but it had a niche. They ran the only USDA certified organic farm in the city of Chicago. So this huge farm in the middle of Inglewood, teaching people how to grow their own food, selling that produce all across the city. They had a job placement rate of like 95%. So if you graduate from this program, you're getting a job, but they were looking for a fresh voice. They had the same nonprofit, the same executive director for 20 years. So I came in and took over that nonprofit raised over a million dollars in the first year, um, started giving the produce out locally. We sold produce mostly on the north side, but I thought that didn't make sense. Like we're right here in Inglewood. There are not a lot of access points for food here. Uh, from my federal experience, I knew that food, you know, access to food is such a huge issue. And I, I did that work nationally. So I definitely wanted to kind of bring that voice to growing home, which we did. And now you see they are, they are a much uh, bigger source of food in the Inglewood community, but also expanding out the job program was another big uh, thing that I was interested in. So I was doing that work, very happy with that work. And then I got a call about what was happening in cannabis. And I think what led me to it, what made me interested in it was, how much what they were trying to do with cannabis intersected with who I, my life and who I was. One, the goals here were to impact those people and communities most impacted by the war on drugs. That's exactly the work I was doing. I was in Inglewood running a job program for people mostly who were formerly incarcerated themselves through agriculture. Like it was the epitome of what they were trying to do. So I understood intimately who and what this was for. Uh, but also I have federal agricultural experience. I have worked um, for USDA. I understood ag because cannabis is ag. People don't see it that way. Uh, but it is indeed agriculture. Um, so I did understand, you know, walking into a cultivation center and they got these huge hydroponic systems. I understand that. So I felt that this was an opportunity for me to lend my voice and my experience to the work that they were trying to do here. And everything that I did, equity was always at the center. And I felt that this was an opportunity to take what was once criminalized and impacted particularly my own people in such a significant way and turn it on its head, create owners, help people to move into the jobs that are in this space, help ancillary businesses move into this space, take money and invest it into communities just like Inglewood. Um, so I could see the value of what could come from this. And I definitely felt that it was worth being a part. So I made the jump and I've been here since August, 2020. Awesome. Long, long story, right. For such a young person. <laughs> yeah, No, but thank you for running through all that. I think it, it shows that's helpful to know when, when you consider taking that position. Right. And uh, in the spirit of, it sounds like everything you did in the past. I just want to give a quick plug. We always try to make sure that people know how we can get a hold of our guests. Here's another public face, another example of you making a public face to the CROO. And so folks that aren't watching 
um, the Chillinoy podcast right now. First of all, newsflash, you can watch it now. Just go to chillinoy.net slash YouTube and you can watch this video and you can see what I'm displaying. I'm displaying the fact that the CROO has a social media presence now, which I love um, because, uh, you know, it, it, like you said earlier, it's that public face. I mean, there's a contact um, if people had questions, you know, and that's precisely how I ended up getting a hold of you. And so I wanted to thank you again, by the way, for your time. Um, but yeah, I wanted to plug this. And I think uh, everything that you just talked talked about, it makes sense as to why you would consider this this role. Um, what's it What's it been like, honestly? That's a good question. So you said honestly. So uh, it's it's <clears throat> what's the right answer to say? I, it's been tough. It's not an easy job, and often public service is just not easy. You're not you're not you know what people will say on Instagram is you're just getting rich and sitting around. But the truth is, you work day and night trying to make opportunities for people who typically never had opportunities or that have often been left out. And you're trying to make drastic change and people have really high expectations for all of this to happen overnight, for it to all be perfect. And um, you can have a heart to wanna make sure that people who are who are most impacted by this war on drugs are, are owners and, and employed and all these different things, that doesn't mean that it's gonna happen, happen perfectly and that people will not you know, tear you down in the process. So you could be the very one person who's in there in the room behind closed doors fighting for, for everyone, but uh, that doesn't mean that people won't take every opportunity to uh, tear down the work that you are doing. So sometimes this can be challenging and extremely daunting uh, but you know 500,000 records expunged 50 million dollars invested in community no matter what they say on the news I can know for myself that the work I did here made a difference and for that I'm very happy that I had this job yeah I mean I get it it can it can feel thankless um, you know just doing this show um, I mean takes effort to do this and takes effort to think about what I want to say. I mean, sometimes I'm on here just messing around high as a kite. Right. But sometimes I'm really trying to, thanks for laughing at my joke, but sometimes I'm really trying to deliver a message and inform the people. And uh, sometimes they just critique this little thing and it's like, but wait, what about all of this? What about all of this? And that that's actually something that you just alluded to, um, you know, uh, just to, quote you and I want to give you like an opportunity to expound upon this because uh, I don't feel like you've been given uh, like that you that you have had a platform like my own where you can we can just talk about these things so um, in the past you said when you hear about Illinois people say no licenses have been given out this is something that we take on all the time uh, you said every time I read it I cringe because it's just not true right and it's not um, our social our social equity measures get deduced to the dispensary licenses somehow and I think that you do people a disservice, particularly social equity a disservice, um, when everything we do in equity, some of which you just mentioned, 500,000 expungements, 20,000 pardons, the investment that the state's made in the community from the community colleges that they've been working in the space, uh, working with in the space to the loan program, all of those things you guys have done get deduced to a soundbite, which isn't factual. You have released 150 licenses of those 150. Now, correct me if I get these numbers wrong, please. 
50% are people of color, 40% are black. 12 of those licenses are 100% black owned businesses, five of which are black women. And before all this, I mean, we had eight 100% white owned businesses on the agricultural side. So to add 12 of those licenses, 100% black owned, I mean, when you talk about the numbers, and while they may be small, and that's a conversation we'll have about later, the limited license approach, um, the numbers paint, do tell a different story than what is, in, what is often shared. And if I might say my, so myself bitched about, I mean, people have come on my show and they've been like, well, there's no fucking licenses uh, issued. And it's like, well, no, that's not true. I mean, we've had like Mike Fouché come on the show and explain that 40 craft licenses have been issued. But frankly, there's a lot of complications that go into it. For example, supply shortages. It's not something I really have thought about or I had thought about. It's not something a lot of people thought about. Yeah, you might have the license, but are you ready to build out? And even if you do have a facility built out, as Mike and other experts have taught us, it takes time to get that crop out to to a a confident level that you'd want to put it on the shelves. So I know I just said a lot. What I want to do is give you an opportunity to take on some of the angst in Illinois. I know I mentioned a lot of numbers. If I, if I missed any, please like fill in the gaps, but you know, there's a lot of anger in Illinois. And I think that uh, some of it, you know, you could argue might be rightfully so, um, but it's kind of out of our hands at this point. Some of it is uh, misplaced. So Danielle, uh, the floor is yours. (laughs) I was going to let you keep going. (laughs) You were good. So no, Uh, Let me start by saying this, and this is what I was getting to in your question about how has this job been for me? Um, And I'll start by saying this one thing. I think people were looking for this to be like the magical, uh, I wouldn't say savior, but like this instant gratification, which is which may be who we are as a country at this point. But sometimes it it hurts my heart, the idea that people felt that uh, decades of disinvestment and and generations of structural and institutional racism was going to be fixed overnight. You know, it's not. They're, They're just not. And I think a lot of the work that's going to happen here will take time that everything's going to continue to improve. Sometimes I think people forget this is the first try, the first application that they've been, sometimes people behave as if these are the only licenses ever that will ever come out ever. And it's not true. There are more to come. There are more opportunities for us to continue to change this. So let me start by saying, um, though I understand some of the frustration, and again, like sometimes we ignore that this all happened like January 1st, 2020. And then there was a little thing called COVID, you know, so nobody ever tells all of that or thinks of all of that when we talk about this work. Um, But as if that is the base, if you think of it that way, that people have this expectation that this was all going to magically change everything. um, I, I think sometimes we get lost in that in that moment, that that level of being upset, even for me as an employee, I want everything to change overnight. I want everything. I want a whole staff to be built out tomorrow, um, you know, and, and just life doesn't happen that way. But what I do think is what has happened is a start. And it's a pretty good start, particularly sometimes people talk about this start out of context. And I like to 
put it back in context. Put it in context with the Colorado and the Washington and the Oregon who started cannabis and equity wasn't even in the conversation. And I, I love those guys there. They're, they have been great partners and friends to me, but I like to call that out because when you think about cannabis now, when you get on the national regulators calls, I'm the only black person on the call. I mean, that says something about Illinois. There's one other black woman on the call. She's from Louisiana. She runs Just Medical, a small medical shop. We are the second largest cannabis uh, industry in this country. And the person who runs it is a black woman. Everybody else, you get on the call and it's almost all white men. So that's the start, right? Illinois just does things differently. And out of context, when you just deduce it down to these dispensary licenses and people go on and on about failure, I think you miss the forest for the trees, honestly. You, you do equity a disservice. I said it, but I'll say it again because equity is so much bigger than licensing number one, and licensing just one type. Um, number two, so when I think about equity, and I'm actually the, the co-chair of the Social Equity Committee for the National Regulators Association, along with Cedric Sinclair from Massachusetts. When we talk about equity, we talk about so much. One, diversity in licensing. We, we wanna see that, right? Um, and, and all the things it takes to even do that. And, and what that might look like, whether it means not having property requirements, whether that means not having a point system or competitive application process, whether that means having a point system where you prioritize a social equity applicant. Um, I'm trying to think of just all the things Illinois, a reduced fee or fee waivers. There's so many elements to how creating a loan program. Illinois was the first in the country to create a low interest loan program where the state itself will give you funds to kind of get going once you actually become licensed. All of these efforts are efforts in diversifying the ownership in licensing, right? But then there's also who's on the board. Um, who, of your company, who are the employees and not the for just the frontline workers, but the middle management and the executive leadership team? Uh, what efforts are we making, not just in our community colleges, but just the work that we're doing here around diversity, equity, inclusion to diversify this industry? And then also, what about the ancillary businesses? Every time you go to a dispensary, there's a security guard in front. Who owns those companies? When you're at a cultivation center, one of the biggest things you'll see is waste. Who's on, who owns the waste company? So a lot of times people have this very small view of when we think of equity and, and cannabis. That's just one piece is the diversity of the industry and who owns is just one piece of it too. But I think the reinvestment piece is huge. And we were the first state to do it. We were the first state to decide that the tax funds just don't go back to the state, like call it out. And again, I'm not trying to come for the other states, but the tax revenue went to the state coffers, period. No other conversation. Um, Illinois was the first state to say 25% will go to reinvestment in nonprofits that do reentry and youth work and violence prevention and economic development and legal aid. 20% of the funds will go to mental health and substance use and trauma. You add that together, that's 45% of the tax funds not coming to the state coffers, but going to community. We are in Illinois complaining about or going back and forth about which nonprofits got them. There's no other state where any nonprofit got a dollar. So, I mean, I think you have to look at it, like I said, in context. Uh, what you saw that happened after Illinois was like New York passed theirs 
and 65% of their taxes go to community. So what we did here was we created a standard. New Jersey came after saying, yes, we're going to reinvest our funds as well. Uh, Connecticut. So what did we do here? We, I think we made it uncomfortable for somebody to do what the states who legalized first did, which is to just legalize and for equity to not be in the conversation. And then what everybody talks about doing but doesn't always do well is, is the expungement and pardon work. And we all have to continue to push to grow out that work. But you don't see the numbers that you're seeing from Illinois, half a million arrest records done in the first year. They were supposed to be done over a little bit every year for five year period. And when I came in, I came in August 2020. There were discussions being had about how how, in fact, we did these expungements. And I just kept pushing and pushing it to see, like, well, what's the real process? What does it really take if you're going to find the ones for this year to this year? Can't you find all of them? And can we delete them all at the same time? So we pushed until we were able to figure out a way from within the state to find a mechanism to do them all at once. And so all that was supposed to happen over a five year span happened in the first year after legalization. So to me, when I think of equity in cannabis, I think about um, how we can repair the harm which is expungement and pardons, but also what I love about Illinois, also not done anywhere else, is our legal aid work, where we are funding a collaboration of legal aid organizations across the state. We call it New Leaf Illinois. You can go to their website today, literally right now, newleafillinois.org. And you could go on and, and somebody from a legal aid organization closest to your house will contact you and they will work with you to work on the expungement of your record. That's not happening anywhere else, anywhere. So yes, I know I said it before, but I said everywhere I go, if we want to, and I'm actually build it out a little, just a little bit right now. If we want every state in this country to legalize cannabis and we want them to make equity a priority, when we say that, what do we mean? I think it includes, number one, making sure that there is no one sitting in a prison or having a record with cannabis on their record, um, and then we're legalizing making money from it. So that's the first thing. So expungement and pardon to me is imperative. That's first. The second is that some of these tax revenue begin to help the communities that were hardest hit. What that looks like, it could even be direct grants to people. You've seen like a town like Evanston do that, where they called it reparations, but at the end of the day, they found a way to use some of the tax funds that they're collecting, because you know these cities are collecting and these counties are too. How are they using the funds? And it could be to nonprofits. It could be to small governments. It could be to individuals. And I know there's other cities who are thinking about that. I know we met with the city of New York, I want to say Rochester, thinking about giving money directly to the hands of folks. That Those are options of how we can reinvest funds. To me, I don't like to have a conversation with a state that's thinking about legalizing if they don't have it in there. I think it's imperative. And then diversity of the industry, which is everybody's favorite thing to talk about. Um, I, I think it's important for us to figure out ways to continue to diversify this industry, but to do it in a way where the application process itself is not burdensome on people and that we continue to look to simplify. And no, I'll tell you this nationally, we have conversations all the time about the right way to do that. I don't know that anybody has found the perfect way and we're still trying to figure that out, but 
we have to first see what does our process yield? Illinois had a point system where 20% of the points went to people who were social equity. We did not define social equity as race. You saw a state like Ohio tried that and they were sued. Um, so that didn't work. So Illinois tried to do a race neutral approach. And that meant that they defined social equity as somebody who was either from a community that was hardest hit by the war on drugs. They were themselves arrested or convicted of a cannabis crime or an immediate family member or that they were a company who hired a certain percentage of their employees who fit those qualifications, right? That's how we define equity. What that yielded for us was in our first application round that actually yielded licenses, which is the agricultural licenses, you saw 40 craft growers, 33 infusers, and 145 transporters, and 100% of those people were social equity. So what does that tell you? That the point system did in fact work. It worked in the sense that it got 100% people who were 51% owners who fit those qualifications. But when people say social equity, they really mean race, right? So I also did have the data folks on our team do some research into the demographics of the people who did win. Now we're using their application. It was race neutral, so they weren't required to put their race. But with the race that they identified, we saw that over 50% of the people who won, the companies that won, were 51% owned by people of color. And overwhelmingly, they were Black. And you gave some of my numbers that I typically give out, which are that um, not only was almost 40% of the people Black, but you even saw that 12 of the companies were 100% black owned business. So what people will say is, well, they're not really black or they're just fronts or they're just this. And everybody has a definition for what they mean when they say equity. But uh, I think one of the things people mean is, what is what's the racial makeup of the team? And we saw that significantly um, they, were, they were black and some of the teams were very small. So it'd be like three or four people and four, Four of the out of the four, they were all black people or you would see uh, one Latina and three black women or things like we saw mixtures of races as well. Um, and, and some people may call that a front, but I think we have to be honest with ourselves. People come together to build businesses every day and we don't call them for us. They're just people collectively collaborating so that they can have a business. And we saw mixtures of people that were often significantly people of color. So what we see is a what was 100% white medical industry, when you add those new licensees, it's now a 34% white industry. And to me, that means that that first round, that first time out the gate, changed the face of this industry as we know it. Yeah. And I got us uh, nose deep into that conversation. It was great. And, and once again, well said. Um, I do want to take a step back. Um, before we talk about like, uh, you know, that idea you just brought up of having a front and like, you know, you talked about the competitive licenses, uh, licensing pro uh, process. You've talked about that in the past. So I have a quote that I think will easily open up that conversation again when we return to it. But uh, again, that was my bad. I feel like I got us nose deep in a conversation before I had you just take a step back and just like, what is your day to day like? <laughs> If you could, like, I, I know there's a lot of different things that have come up to now, but I'm just like curious, like I, I just really am. 
I don't know what a firefighter's day is like, but it feels like, no, I'm kidding. Going from fire to fire. No, that's not true. I, so this might help you actually see what my role is too. Um, we are just as a like step back, we are, um, we were the 11th state to legalize cannabis, right? And there are a number of other states that do it. I named some, some of my states that I look to, Nevada, Massachusetts, um, but then there are new states that came after us like New York and Jersey, who you talk about, heard me talk about. Uh, we are one of the only states that have a decentralized approach to regulation. And what that means is we have a number of agencies that manage uh, the regulation of cannabis. So IDFPR, which is the Illinois Department of Financial and Professional Regulation, they license lots of professions. They also license dispensaries. And so they are responsible for the regulation of the dispensaries, the Department of Agriculture. They're responsible for the regulation of the cultivation centers, the growing, the craft grow, the infusers. They certify the laboratories. They also certify our community colleges that work in cannabis um, and our transporters. So those are the two big agencies when people talk about regulation. Uh, but also our medical program is run by the Department of Public Health. The state police, they can inspect any facility here. So they have a, a pretty uh, decent sized inspections unit of, of officers who go in and inspect the locations. The Department of Commerce and Economic Opportunity, they run our technical assistance. That's one thing we do to diversify the industry. We have actual people who work with our applicants so that they can be successful in their application or at least know and have information. So they actually do the grant making around technical assistance and they also run the loan program. So you are hearing me name agencies that work in cannabis. My everyday looks like talking to all those agencies. And, um, and there's, all, there's all, like 13 of them, right? In total. Right. Right, 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 right. So there are a number of agencies involved. The ones I named are the ones that we that do a significant amount of the work. The ones that I didn't name are ones you may not think of, like revenue. They have, there are a lot of taxes collected, so that's a great example of one I may not talk to every day, but that's still involved in cannabis. So my job, we don't have like, you know, the liquor commission or the gaming board. We don't have a cannabis commission or a cannabis agency where everyone works for the agency. So we have an inspections unit or an investigations unit or something of that nature. Instead, I kind of go from agency to agency to learn about their problems process and procedure of how they do things. One thing that people often get confused about me, I have nothing to do with the individual licensing process. My role is really to oversee how, how the agencies work and, and how, how they are actually carrying out their mission and getting things accomplished. I do not get into individual cases and that's a big, uh, I would just say something, a big part of the confusion of what this role is. I, I'm really supposed to deal with the process and procedure here. And, and one of my main jobs is to talk about policy. So bringing in the legislative directors from all of those agencies and thinking about how does this, how does this industry emerge? What's next? You know, something that's really unique about Illinois is we were the first state to legalize through legis the legislation itself. So it was a huge document. It's almost like 600 pages when you print it out. We have to live by that statute and every detail in it. So if we want to make any change, it's a legislative fix. So really, a lot of this comes down to the legislature itself. And if we want to see something change, 
our state representatives and state senators would have to make that change. Um, not, not much of this work is done by rule or really administratively. So people offhand say, you should just do this or you should just do that. You mentioned earlier that that's the case. So one of the things I'm responsible for is looking at nationally what, how this industry grows and what policy looks like and legislation over time and promoting best practices throughout the industry. So my day-to-day is, is um, significantly talking to the agencies that work in cannabis. And, and also I talk a lot about other states. I, we, we do communicate a lot. And a lot of our work is sometimes national to understand what's happening in states who came before us, our neighbors like Michigan, talk to them a lot, what they're seeing. Cannabis is one of those things where I say like the firefighter analogy, something new happens every day. And so um, some of my work is staying really close, not just with nationally, but super hyper locally, talks to a lot of the advocates in the community consistently. We have working groups at the crew. We call ourselves colloquially the crew, C-R-O-O. Um, we, we have working groups every Wednesday about policy or about the medical patients so that we can hear from community about how they're experiencing cannabis and we can work to make the changes that they want to see. So um, we do a lot of community interfacing both here locally, nationally, but mostly it's that intergovernmental work like I did when I worked for Obama. It's very similar having to work amongst the agencies to get things done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and thank you for highlighting. One of the things you highlighted was precisely the reason I invited you onto the show, other than the fact that I think this will be the first of many conversations we we can have together. Um, you pointed out something that I think is super important that people misunderstand or just don't know about your position, which is just that um, it's a point I tried to make at, at the beginning of the show, but you just put it so much more brilliantly and I'm probably about to butcher what you said. So um you basically just said we're bound by that statute. And like, as far as licensing goes, you know, you hear shouts all the time, open the market, you know, like do this, do that. And it's like, you know, while they might be great ideas that we can both agree on, um, that's not within the scope or the purview of your role. Correct. Correct. Yeah. But, but it is, the state legislature. Right. <laughs> they right. can they can make those changes. And I try to be really helpful to them. I try to give updates to every legislator and the caucuses so that they are very clear about not just what's happening here, but what's happening around the country. And what I hear from community as well, how people are experiencing um, the work that we're doing. But it is 100%. Um, because of the nature of how we pass this law, any little change. And so funny, sometimes you'll hear the advocates say, I want it all in the bill. I want every word in there. I don't want any chance for the agency to be able to change their mind. Well, that's a double-edged sword because if any little thing needs to be changed, you got to get it passed through both chambers. And that is not an easy feat. And so that takes so much work, not just politically, but the understanding and the education so that everybody understands how this impacts people, what needs to change, what the next steps could look like. Um, that is a lot of work. And so it's something I think people do not understand or at least just don't mention enough. And they, they will, will uh, be outside of the Thompson Center and not 
you know, not really and expecting that we can just make a change when we go to work that day. <laughs> and it's it, the truth is the change sometimes is is quite often actually legislated. Yeah. Well, um, I want to talk about um, about that in a moment um, and just get your take on it, because I'm aware of a, a, a bill that's been presented um, by a few legislators that that talk about consolidating the agencies. And I wanted to see like what your take on that was, if you like thought or if you like have seen other states do similar things. I'm personally aware of one state that does something that sounds similar. Um, but before we talk about that, because I think that would free it from the legislature, I think. But um, before we talk about that, I wanted to talk about um, the application process, which is something we just kind of got knee deep into. And you pointed out, um, you know, 100% of the folks that won um, were social equity licenses because of the application process. Um, you know, whether or not it's misguided or not, we've always made, tried to make the case that like, while that may be true, you know, uh, an open license market would ensure that more people, maybe, maybe would ensure that more of those people, um, and I don't mean to say completely open, we have to like step that back a little bit. There's got to be some uh, limits in place. And, and I can name a few that the state of Illinois actually has that I think are beneficial that I'd like to keep. And that sounds like a controversial line. The Illinois podcast supports license caps in Illinois, but I will expound upon that. It's really, it's to keep an equal footing uh, for the industry. But um, you pointed out in the past that, uh, you know, people will pinpoint things they didn't get uh, points for and allege that maybe preference is playing a role. For example, the veterans points or any, you name it, people point out any thing and they'll be like, this is preference. Um, the truth is you've said the larger issue at hand might be that, the application process itself was competitive because it's a competitive process. And the goal was to get people with the highest score. If you didn't get the highest score, you didn't get licenses. So I think the larger question is, is it important for us? And should we in the future do a competitive process with points and should we have limited licensing? Because to me, again, I'm quoting you <laughs> when you have a small amount of licenses, you make it about how well you did with the points uh, then it turns into how much money, you know, you can pour into consultants to ensure that you score favorably. Um, it seemed to me, it seemed like, you know, not that your job is to give your opinion, but it seemed to me that that was like, an, you know, cause again, you're bound by that statute. But like, if I asked you personally, it sounds like you see a uh, logic behind like a more open approach as opposed to a competitive licensing approach? Am I like understanding that correctly? Don't read too far into it. No, I'm kidding. I, <laughs> so I have this conversation with Steve Marks in Oregon all the time. He really is a firm believer. Hey, open the whole thing up and, and it would, then you would get a lot more people just because it's open. And I will tell you this, I'm not going to say my opinion personally, left or right. Right. It's definitely worth a conversation. It's worth us continuing to figure out. And I know that's a non-answer, but let me tell you why. And I said it earlier, no one really knows the perfect uh, formula just yet. 
You know, we we can only right now collect data on what we've done. It would be so difficult to walk away from this point system when you see at the end of the day that it yielded 100% social equity and over 50% people of color. So if you did open it up, one of the things you're going to have to question to yourself is, will it yield me those type of numbers? And I'm going to actually guess the answer is no. You're not going to be able to guarantee that it will be a diverse industry if you open it up. And I'll, this is my this is my uh, my guess. Why? I talked a little bit about structural and institutional racism and generations of disinvestment and the fact that, you know, I speak for myself as a black person. There's not a ton of wealth in my own family. Right. I'm just going to talk about me. So even if I did win a license, I can't call my grandpa and ask him for for ten dollars, let alone a million or two. Um, And so. I don't know that necessarily that that's that just opening them up will do anything but help the resourced people and who have traditionally been the most resourced people in this country. I think those people are not always diverse. And so I don't know that just saying have an open market is the answer. I also don't know that a competitive process is the answer. What I'm committed to say is that we as states, we as as regulators across the country need to kind of pull our data and all of our attempts. Look at every state that came after us. They all did it differently, kind of like ours, but a little different. Let's see where theirs land. Let's uh, even IDSPR, the they just put out new a new structure or a new idea for the next 55 licenses, which don't include a point system. It's simply you apply, they lower the fee and it goes into the lottery. And, you know, that's something that you see actually in Canada. I think it was Ontario when they first started where they said um, they only had 25 licenses. They didn't make you apply and then put you in a lottery. They had you pay a nominal fee, put everybody in the lottery for those 25 slots. And then those 25 people, they worked with them to get their license and get up and running. So cut the application and and not on the front end, put it on the back end. I, I look at IDFPR's process, very similar. So one of the, if we see that it's a barrier to get through the application process, eliminate that. Give people a chance to come in where they're not making the investment on the front end. They get in the lottery if they get their slot. Now, let's work through the application. Let's make sure you have the information you need. It's no longer a competitive process. Let's see what that yields us. But one of the requirements in IDFPR's process is that you are social equity. So that's a way to still guarantee social equity, but also you know, reduce that barrier of the application and the points. Uh, so I think we have to keep working through what those options are. I am not gonna tell you that I think an open market actually is the answer because yeah. I, I will tell you this one thing though, and it's one of the things that has always vexed me since I took this job. One thing you have to know before you create the system is what the goal is. Is the goal to have people who are people of color win licenses and then be able to sell them or do whatever they want with it and it creates some generational wealth in their family, this one, the 75 people's families and it's worth a ton, is that your goal? Is your goal to create people of color or small businesses or women? Like, who's your goal? Who are you going for, really? And then 
if it is to create businesses for them that can last for generations, that they can stand up and be successful, is it to compete with multi-state operators? Like I think sometimes when I took this job, I was vexed by the idea that everybody's goals were so different. And they all conflated into this whole social equity, like these two magical words. But you'll talk to a person and say, let's make an open market. Well, how can anybody, will their licenses be worth a lot if it's an open market? Um, If it's about making the licenses worth a lot, then you might want to close the market so that people can have licenses that are of strong value. If it's about having people be in this industry and be able to stay in the industry, you might say, You can't sell this license to anybody who's not social equity. That way you're ensuring for perpetuity that these licenses will be owned by people who are defined as social equity. Um, I think you have to figure out your goal first and then work backwards. And then you can make those decisions because if not, you'll keep kind of bouncing from one to the other. Oh, you can't sell the licenses to anybody, but Hey, wait, I need to be able to sell the creation. It depends on whose side you're on. And I think when you squarely make a decision about which side you want to be on, it can help you to figure out which way to go about doing it. I know that could sound confusing, but that that's truly how I feel about this industry and, and which way to go on the application side. Yeah, no, but I mean, it truly is kind of that strat you're kind of like straddling if you're like balancing on a tightrope on, on how exactly to achieve it. Um, you know, um, go for it. I, I get, you know, I get what you're saying. Uh, the idea of opening the market and, and worrying about, what that might result in. Cause frankly, you look at like the food industry today or the media landscape, and there's 11 companies that own the food industry, five that kind of dominate the media. And I'd hate to see that sort of consolidation happen in the cannabis industry, but that's exact. When I was alluding to earlier, that Illinois has some good caps in place. I think like the 10 dispensary cap, the three cultivation center cap would be a, a possibly a good provision uh, to prevent what you're talking about, which is just like a, a total domination. Um, because like, yeah, I mean, I could see that it's somebody that somebody's uh, floated that idea to me too. You don't want to have it completely open because yeah, then people just get bought out and then, you know, it, it turns into this conglomerate, like a Walmart weed, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And there's not and any people, mom and pop shops. Right. And people don't often talk about vertical integration. They they focus so much on the second half, which is like who gets the license and how many they get. But there are states that don't allow vertical integration, like liquor, for example, where you are either a grower or you are either a seller or you are either a distributor. You're not all of these things because then you can create levels of domination. And I think other states that come after us will have really started to to wrestle with that idea because there are states before us, and I'm trying to go off the top of my head, I think like a Washington uh, that either does or does not allow vertical integration, but then there are other that do so you you have to first i think start there and before you even get to um how many of one thing someone can own you have to make that decision do you want people uh to be able to vertically integrate and then you know we could talk about this all day then if you do let's say how much of their own product can you allow do you allow them to sell to themselves how much do you um how does a social equity person get in the game if they could all just sell to each other or to themselves and and what kind of 
Um, there are a couple things I think, and you didn't ask me this, so I'm just gonna throw it out there. You could get people licenses. So let's say you're successful at getting people licenses. I think another step you have to take is first capital. Capital is one of the biggest things. People struggle with capital. And, and I struggle personally to think of how can we get them money faster on the front end? Like if we keep this application the same way, how do we get them money to get through that process? What does that look like? Um, we don't want them all to be loans. Can we get grants? You have to really think through how we can support our folks with funding, not just after they get the license, maybe even before. I talked about that on some a panel you watched. Um, so I think capital is huge, but then as regulators and legislators, I'm always gonna talk about legislators when you're in this kind of state, how can we make opportunities for our social equity folks to succeed? That might mean that we say you have to work with them. You have to, um, you know, play, play in the market with them or, or limit the amount that one person can provide to themselves. These are conversations we're having nationally around how do you support the equity licensee once they get in the game? And some, some states like Massachusetts may say, only a social equity licensee can apply or be running for a certain amount of years, like their delivery licenses. Massachusetts did social equity only licenses. Often they conflate that with what we did here. It's not the same. We don't have social equity only licenses. We have a licensing structure where we prioritize equity. That's not the same. Massachusetts has a delivery license where you have to be social equity to get it. And they have to operate their business, I believe, for three years before anybody else can apply. So they have opened the door for a social equity person to really get a foothold into the delivery market. That's another opportunity that we could consider and talk through whether that's something we want to try to do here when we get to delivery or when we think of new license types. And if I have a conversation with the state, like let's say Maryland or somebody who's thinking about legalizing, these are the things I mentioned. Look at masks. Look at what we did. Try to see if this is something you want to take from that could work for you to create opportunities. But you can't just give a person a license. You have to think about all, like Illinois loan program, and we should see that money coming out like soon in the coming weeks. This this is something that no other state has done. We know capital is a huge issue. You have to do more. You cannot just say, "Here we gave you a license." That's right. just a start. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. That people have to be capitalized. I mean, if they're coming from historically being disadvantaged, you might want to have certain ways to help them get that leg up. And I get what you mean in spirit, like with the limited licenses, like it does. Or, uh, some people don't like my choice in wording on this, but it does artificially inflate the value of the license. I say that because it's a, you know, a state kind of controlled thing. If it is limited, I mean, that inherently increases the value of the license versus if it's something like Oklahoma, where, I mean, the value of the license is, is precisely the value of the license. What is it like 5,000 bucks or something like that? I don't know. Like that's as much as it's worth because, uh, because they just, you can just buy them and, and they get them uh, handed out like that. So that's a great conversation that you just brought up. Like how, not only do, how do we give, social equity, uh, you know, pe people that qualify under social equity, a chance in the market, how do we give them those licenses, but how do we make sure that they're prepared to actually execute the business that that license allows them to, to run. Um, and one thing that you keep bringing up that I think is so important. And I, 
I was just talking on somebody's show that it's just like, I'm so frustrated about this. Equity is bigger than licensing. And this is going to switch our topics here a little bit. Um, unless you had any other thoughts uh, uh, on that, on licenses. Um, equity is bigger than licensing. You brought up expungements, you know, the idea that people shouldn't be serving jail time for cannabis. Um, taxes, that's a part of the conversation with regard to social equity. The thing I've been so frustrated about is that, yeah, the conversation is just about like, how do we get these people their licenses so that they can make money? And look, I'm all for giving people a chance to build intergenerational wealth. I'm just asking the community right now, can we walk and chew bubblegum? Because the original intent of this law was to legalize can- cannabis. And, and in my opinion, and you've talked about this and, and we can get into this, I don't think we've actually achieved that. I don't think we've, you know, we've made steps towards doing that. I always say it this way, the CRTA decriminalized uh, small amounts, uh, uh, the possession of small amounts of cannabis for residents and non-residents. It also legalized the purchase of adult use cannabis, small amounts at state approved dispensaries, you know, and from state approved cultivators. That's really what it comes down to. And the reason I like say it so meticulously, and you've pointed this out before in an interview that we can link in our show notes, uh, with Al Jazeera, People continue to get arrested for cannabis uh, in Illinois because of possession limits. Um, for example, I mean, that's one, that's one thing. Um, can we, I would like to have a conversation about not, not specifically possession limits, but that's a good, easy example to talk about. Um, it, it's, it's interesting to me that that gets lost in the conversation because it's like, let's, let's right the wrongs of the war on drugs. Let's do what we can to, make sure that, you know, people that are disadvantaged have an opportunity to participate, but we haven't done away with the policies that made them, dis- that, that disadvantaged them. You know what I'm saying? I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I think I, I talked about the legislature earlier. I think this is definitely something I'd like to see the legislature consider for sessions in the future is how we can continue to grow out this work. So, yes, like you said, there's it's, it's just possession. So that's the first thing you talked about, the possession limit, but it's possession. So when somebody gets arrested for a crime, it's it's usually not just possession. It's uh, paraphernalia, intent to sell, tons of other things. So that's the first thing is how do we grow this out if we want to? That's the decision you have to make as a state is what does it look like to really cover everything that somebody might be charged in these cases. And then, then you talked about the limit itself, the number that we all like people typically use. Um, and I had this conversation also with, uh, from a national perspective, when you look at the more act and having conversations with, um, Senator Booker's office and, um, you know, Senator Schumer's office, how will you make these arbitrary numbers and what will you call the um, the crimes that you're willing to expunge and how can we build that out and grow that out na- nationally as they consider national legalization? I want to have those same conversations here. So you're right. I'm, I'm with you 100% agree that, that these are things we need to discuss and I, I think there are ways that we can continue to build on it. And I want to push you one step further beyond expungement and pardon. Think about also the equity around who can work in this industry. 
like on the medical side, we have excluded offenses where you cannot work in a medical dispensary or a cultivation center if you have certain offenses. But on the adult side, you can, but then everybody right now who's operating is someone who was who has both the medical and adult license. So they could say, hey, I can't hire you because on the medical side, it, you know, X, Y, and Z. So that's something you want to consider as well. How do we even grow what we have here um, as excluded offenses that keep you from working in this industry? Um, I would say also uh, another step further is employment around whether you can be fired if it's in your system. Um, you know, another thing I'm, I'm trying to work on is continuing to work with state police around training. And also nationally, there's a conversation about roadside testing of cannabis and how we can get some. So anyway, we could talk all day, but I, I, I love to tell people and I say this on the national regulators cause all the time. Equity is not a side piece or a side thing. Equity is in everything that we do. And if you think of it that way and you take a second to step back and think, what are the equity issues that you see? We could be talking about Delta eight. We could be, it doesn't matter what you're talking about. There are equity issues in it. And so push past the first thing that comes to your mind, two, three, four steps past that. And I, I think it will always bring up issues that, that I don't think sometimes also always people are thinking about. And to me, not to be rude, but when somebody only cares about licensing, that tells me a lot about them. Yeah. Yeah. There are millions of people who could be helped by expungement and pardon work, but you care about the 75 people who are going to get rich off of a license. Like that just tells me so much about, do you actually care about equity in this state or do you just care about you getting a license? And I can easily see when somebody starts talking to me about equity, that they don't really care about equity. They care about themselves getting a license. And to me, those are two different things. Absolutely. Well, hey, uh, the, the possession limit topic I just brought up, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Danielle, but it's another one that you would point to the state legislature on because, uh, for example, in the past, there's been a bill, House Bill 3085, that was introduced and God damn it, we need to reach out to our elected officials to get something like this reintroduced. Um, I love it. Allow for automatic expungement of any cannabis possession or delivery offenses that occurred on or after January 1st, 1970. Weird date to pick, but whatever. Um, this is what I like. This measurement would also remove criminal penalties for any amount of cannabis possession, which is precisely what we're talking about. It's not a change you could directly make yourself, but um, the state leg legislature could. Really quick, another thing that gets people arrested is the the way that transport laws defined. I speak to attorneys on our show and uh, cannabis is to be transported in a child-proof, sealed, odor-proof odor container, mm -hmm. which is impossible. Show me one. I want to talk to the Illinois State Police and give me, give me one of those odor-proof odor -proof, uh, containers. I've, I actually spoke to police that have gone to dispensaries here in town um, just other conversations and when the dispensaries first came into town they you know reached out to law enforcement because it's a, they want to have a good relationship with law enforcement and i asked them i was like when you went in there it smelled right and they're like oh yeah it smelled like weed and i'm like so think about that it's not in odor proof containers that means the moment that i walk out of the store i'm out of compliance with the law like when i get in my car at least there's not you know what i'm saying i hear you 
I want to tell you one more thing. I wanted to say earlier, but I don't want to forget it. Yeah, go, There's go another ahead. thing I, I tell other states that I'm tell, going to tell you right now. When you are talking about this work, you do not want just the state police to expunge records or the local law enforcement to expunge records. You want the court clerks to expunge records. We don't want this to be anywhere where somebody could lose, not get a job or lose a job because they can find it. Um, and I will say another thing that people may not like might be controversial, but as I've been doing this work, I'm really passionate about the expungement piece. So, you know, I was excited that half a million records were expunged in my first couple of months in this job. I was so proud of myself. And then I learned that these state, these state local law enforcement agencies don't necessarily have all the funding they need to find and locate all of these cases and have staff to like when I went when I was calling the locals trying to figure out have you done your expungement they're telling me that they're in paper files and boxes or on microfiche and I, I mean for me it was I just thought it was all electronic systems and when we have this conversation nationally that's that's got to be a part of the work nobody wants to fund it but the truth is if we want to see it happen and see it happen efficiently we need to make sure it's done at every level. So add the court clerks, but make sure that you can cover the costs for them to do the expungement work is not as simple as you think. And the deeper we get into the weeds of how this is going to happen, the quicker you want it, the more work it takes. And also, I, I would definitely say we need some kind of mechanisms to track that it's being done and being done in the time frame that it's supposed to be done. Um, and I said this when I spoke to Schumer and Booker's offices as well. We have to figure that out when you do this on a national level um, and make sure that you're collecting the data so that, you know, expunge means to obliterate, but then how do you know what was expunged and who these folks were and what communities were impacted? So there should be some data and research around this work as well. So I just want to throw that out there to you. It seems like you're very passionate about this work. Let's make sure it's done on every single level, everywhere you can find it so that it could truly change and help people's lives. Yeah, that was a really good conversation. And I think it encapsulates what, you know, we talk about all the time, what is social equity? I think we get, did a good job today, at least maybe not defining the whole, the whole definition, but, but at least what the conversation should include. Um, this is something that I just wanted to make aware for our listeners that I think they should contact our representatives and support. This is me speaking right now. You know, there's an Illinois bill that's going to close an expungement loophole. And it's, I believe it's at the governor's desk at this point. Um, yeah, it was sent to Jeff, governor JB Pritzker, uh, maybe a week or so ago. And if so, if it was signed into law, um, a petition for expungement would not be denied because of a drug test, which I think that's crazy that that was even a part of the language in the law, but I didn't write the law neither did you, you know? So, um, but it's nice that at least, it, I mean, this should, this should happen. I, I don't see why he wouldn't, um, you know, sign this, this into law. So I thought that was important to bring up uh, as we close this conversation uh, on social equity. So yeah. Um, possession limits, um, expungements, um, transport. We need to start a conversation with our audit, our local representatives, Illinois, uh, to talk about taking these things off. I think they would go a long way towards actually making substantial reform uh, in cannabis in Illinois. So, to transition, um, I've kind of just got like uh, I was so excited to speak with you, and I was just, I can I ask you. 
were you aware of me? Do you know about the Chillinoy podcast? Like, do you? I'm, I'll be honest with you. I'm not a big podcaster generally, but no, I I hadn't. I, I saw you. I, I spoke on a panel for, um, I think it was grown in grown in yep. and I saw you in the comments and, uh, and you posted a lot of, of what happened in that podcast and I saw you on Instagram. So actually I did kind of learn about you through Instagram, but not a faithful podcaster, to be honest. Darn. Okay. No worries. I was, I was only asking because, uh, what I, the, this, this backstory will be helpful. I nerd out on this stuff and I always try to say that I don't know exactly what I'm talking about, but like, this is the first time that I at least have. So, so let's back up for a second. We all, I've learned that we all have like authority and influence. And that's kind of what our conversation has been about. You know, your authority is kind of bound by the law, the statute. You might have influence because you work with these other agencies or, or whatever else, or you come on a public platform and speak with me, um, you know, but, but like th- there's, there's that line. And so, uh, you know, if you're not able to answer these questions or whatever, it's, it's so totally okay. Maybe we can, maybe it's an opportunity for a follow-up or whatever else, but this is like, I nerd out on this topic um, and I'm just obsessed with different things. And so I guess my first question to start um, is like, I saw Bob Morgan um, and I've been in contact with Bob Morgan for a while. Um, He passed a bill quite a while ago uh, regarding the um, Illinois medical cannabis program. It actually like reauthorized the program, made it permanent. And one of the rules so let's go, let's go over like the key changes and I can actually maybe display the memo he released. So the key changes are real time changes. Uh, when IDPH register a new dispensary, we've seen that. Um, I'm trying to share my screen, but I'm also trying to make this full screen. So give me just a moment. Okie dokie. So here's just, this isn't the full bill, obviously. Um, this is just the key changes. And I looked through the full bill just to like see if the the language matches up and everything. And um, for the most part, it does. So real-time IDPH dispensary changes, we've seen that implemented. We've seen the addition of uh, qualifying medical conditions. This is where I'm reading, if you can see my mouse, um, that were previously approved. We've seen the removal of the 2020 sunset, and we've seen the renewal process for patients with lifelong conditions. And we've seen the increase in the amount of caregivers that patients can designate to help them access the medical cannabis program. What we haven't seen any movement on is that this says it directs the Illinois Department of Health to establish guidelines uh, permitting returns and refunds for damaged and inadequate products. But I actually read the bill and it says the Department of Financial and Professional Regulation shall uh, adopt rules permitting returns and potential refunds for damaged or inadequate products. My question is, do you have any idea on like where that stands? I I've, I've asked Bob Morgan in the past and he said it's at IDFPR and they're drafting rules. Um, but that was quite a while ago. And I, I, you know, I didn't necessarily prepare you on this particular topic because I was kind of nerding out before I, uh, spoke with you, but do you know of a, of a status on that at all? Cause I feel like it's a really important provision for consumers. 
you know? Yeah, it's a good question. It's not it's not a normal question that people would ask me, but it's 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 a great question. And one of the things I I talked a lot about policy, but one thing I really want to focus on for the rest of this year, rulemaking. So my role in that would be to talk to IDFPR about where they are with their rules. Obviously, they've been in the middle of licensing and everything else that they've been doing. So I know that they have staff working on this. um, And I do think that they they have a goal of getting the rules out soon. But and you just saw like rules, particularly about the new licenses. So they are, as you can see, working through their rules. um, And I do think that that will be coming very soon. Another thing is just ag will continue to make changes to their rules. DCEO has rules, DPH has rules. So what my job would be when I'm meeting with agencies to say, hey, where are you on those rules? Uh, what's happening? This is a timeline. Let's work through it kind of as a check. And, and I have oversight in my title and it's literally like that. So yes, I do know that that's being worked on. Actually, I think there's a call tomorrow about like, rules. So it's happening. Uh, these things don't happen as quickly as we one would like or think. And I know you're not looking for me to say this and it might sound like an excuse, but Hiring and staffing up all of this in the same time and with the normal state processes to hire staff, none of us have enough staff to do any of the work that we're required to do. But one of the things I'd like to see is for us to continue, especially with all these new licensees coming in, is to try to support these agencies to become a lot more, a lot better staffed so that they can handle all of the work that's coming to them. So you got like one or two lawyers working on rules for a whole agency for a whole thing. and I, But I do see and I do know for a fact that this is being worked up and um, you should see the rules fairly soon. Cool. Well, that brings me to my next question, which I like, I, uh, so like I said earlier, I'm aware of a push to consolidate regulatory bodies. And my question is like, are you even, are are you aware of what I'm talking about? First of all, Uh, there's a bill. uh, Okay. I was going to say, I saw headlines about it a while ago, but um, how will like, my thing is, Oh, I alluded to this earlier. I'm aware of other states that do something similar. Like I always point to Michigan, the MRA, the Mich- or the Marijuana Regulatory Agency, not the National Rifle Association or whatever the NRA is, the MRA. Anyways, um, they kind of are a central body that can unilaterally act and say like, we need more licenses. We need more. Th- I don't know exactly what they can do, but they they aren't bound by the statute, the state legislature, more specifically. There's there's like not a statute holding them back really from doing some of those changes, right? Versus where we are today. So I guess my question is, um, how will this, or how could this actually streamline things, like? Is it a matter of pulling those workers out of their agencies in an effort to cut red tape and work more seamlessly? Great questions. Let me say one thing, though, about one thing you said. Um, I thought you were going to use California as an example, and you said Michigan instead. But literally last year, California had three agencies that worked in cannabis, and they consolidated into one. So I thought you were going to use that message. <laughs> example of a state that has previously do, done this and for and just for some history and, and context 
all of these states, almost all have consolidated in some way where they had or, or just moved. So like, like Nevada is my favorite case study. I think they were originally in public health, which a lot of people were because they started with medical. Then they were moved to tax or revenue, whichever they call it in their state. And then they created a commission model where they have commissioners and executive director. And you said something that I want to correct. I don't think per se, that those states have it where their executive director has just, or the commissioners have the ability to just kind of do what they want. I do believe that they have statute that leads them, guides them and directs them. What that statute would do is give them authority to make the decisions you said. So the offhand comment you gave was like, they could decide if they need more licenses. They could just make those choices, not the statute. Actually, I think the statute itself would say they are giving the executive director the authority to decide to increase or decrease licenses. So you still have a statute. It still gives you authority. It just gives the, the body itself more of the authority rather than what our statute does now. It has every detail. You can do this on Monday and then you can do this on Tuesday and then you can lift this and it can never go over this. If you want to go over, the state legislature has to come back and tell you you can. So a decision like that in Nevada would say, uh, you would have to do a market study to evaluate whether or not more licenses are needed. In Illinois, it would just say, can't go past 20. So if you want to go past 20, the state legislature would have to make that decision. That's kind of the difference. So I think you were referring to Representative Evans' bill on consolidation, Leader Evans' bill on consolidation. I think so. Yeah. And I think the way that one was written is that the commission itself would have authority to make decisions. So, around increasing or decreasing licensing, but it would be based on things like a market study, so very similar to Nevada, um, or they would have to do some levels of work. I don't want people to think that if you have a commission, they just make the commissioners make these unilateral decisions. It's usually by statute based on something. So have I seen it? Yes. Uh, I think it's absolutely something all the other states before us have done that I'd like. I think Illinois should definitely move in that direction. Um, when you said would it just be a movement of employees to streamline? I think that's one of the values here that could come of this is that rather than have an inspections unit in ISP and at IDFPR and at AG and at DPH, you would have a commission with an inspections unit. And all of those people would have the same training, the same expertise, the same paperwork um, and requirements. So right now, agriculture may have a different rule and requirement around their inspections that IDFPR does. Now, the, this one company owns a dispensary and a cultivation center, but they're getting different rules from each, each agency about inspections. So yes, when you say streamline, sure, I'd love, I think that makes sense for any state agency. We would want to see, um, you know, everything kind of in one place with one rule, with one standard. That makes sense to me from a streamlining perspective. If that's what you were asking me, sure. I think that makes perfect sense. Um, but I, I think the larger issue is having everything cannabis in one place. So uh, 
people will say, oh, we'll just put it in one state agency. Well, then it's still competing with everything else in the agency. Right. So if you were to move it to revenue, they do taxes for all kinds of things. Or agriculture. They have hemp. They have every other thing. Illinois is a huge agricultural state. So it still could get lost. Even other states, I think Oregon might be one where it's mixed with liquor. Then liquor and cannabis are always competing. And you already know cannabis is way bigger than liquor. So right then and there, liquor goes from having its own commission to be competing in inside of its own commission with somebody else so i think it makes sense to have things in one place where cannabis is the thing if you had cannabis as an agency right now it'd be one of the biggest top 15 agencies in this state so it's huge it's a huge industry i think it deserves its own space but i'll say one more thing i think is important i think if you have a commission or an agency or whatever you decide equity has to be at the forefront Uh, One of the things I've seen other states do that I I don't necessarily love is having like an office on equity. No, I think the commission itself, I told you before, equity is not a side thing. Equity should be a theme of the commission. There should be a high level executive responsible for equity in that commission. And we should think of equity in every way like you and I have talked about. So I think if we what I like about the bill I read here is equity. It's an equity commission that's focused on regulating with an equity mindset. And I I think that's powerful. And I think that's where we should be. And um, so streamlining and putting all these agencies into one makes sense to me. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. That was really my question. I was just like looking for like, what will be, what exactly would be done to make things better. And so, I mean, it sounds like, sounds like the goal would be to have designated resources that like work in lockstep with, with this, with the age, like the agencies would still exist. You'd still have to work with the department of ag, but it's like, you, you would wouldn't. Have, you no? wouldn't necessarily. So you were talking about the funding funding for all these agencies comes from tax revenue. So the tax revenue would just go to the commission and the staff would go from ag to commission, the commission, they would go from IDFPR and be transferred to the commission. You would never have to work with ag and IDFPR or anybody else again. They would, it would be done. The commission itself will be responsible for this work. And that's who that's the only person you'd have to work with. So if you need an answer about something cannabis, you don't have to call three agencies to figure it out. You would go directly to the commission and that's who you will work with. I think that makes sense. And the tax, it's not necessarily like the agencies will be losing funding. It's just, you know, before 2020, you never got cannabis funds. So the work goes with the funding and it would all go to this one place. And that, that would be the commission. Yeah. And I don't, I'm just curious, like, cause this is something that's being proposed. Like what would, what would happen to you though? <laughs> like, I might disappear and that's okay. You know, sometimes you work yourself out of a job and that's, and that's all right. You know, it happens to me more important than me having a job is that this is done right. And so, I, you know, it's funny. I believe that that's what they envision for this role that I have now is that I would kind of be like the cannabis commission and I would build out a staff and we would have oversight of everything. Um, but I have to communicate with the secretaries of whole agencies to get things accomplished. Um, so I, I think my office would be kind of dissolved into the commission as well. I don't think it would make me the executive director, but they would have one and hopefully have just as much of an equity mindset as I do. And it would be somebody who's committed to this work that to me, that's the most important thing, whether it's me or not, does not matter. 
Gotcha. Okay. Well, thanks for, thanks for talking about that. Cause we've talked about it in the past, but I just wasn't exactly sure how it would all play out. And so, um, that sounds, that sounds pretty cool, honestly. Um, I would be um, working for the podcast basically. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'd be happy to have you come on. We'd be happy to have you as a correspondent, a field Thank correspondent yeah, or something. <laughs> um, so, um, I am trying to figure out how I want to bounce around here. I do have like an overriding question about the Illinois state police. Like I just want to be blunt about it. Why do they have access to the Illinois medical cannabis data? I know that there was a provision that removed their access, like so that they couldn't just scan your license plate and see that you had a card. But the fact that let me back up. So you understand where I'm coming from with all this. I'm under the impression that, and this isn't like a huge issue for a lot of people and that's okay. Um, but it is an issue that impacts some people. And I think that's why it's worth talking about. Um, medical cannabis patients cannot purchase a firearm from an FFL or a federally licensed firearm dealer. And it's because they fail the federal background check. And from my understanding, it's because the Illinois state police isn't they're involved with the federal background check and they just so happen to share that data, which ultimately gets you flagged. Now in any other instance or in any other scenario or context rather, like for example, if I didn't have my card, I could lie and I'm not saying that's the right thing to do, but they would have no way to deny that firearm sale. It's only because I'm honest about my state ordained medical cannabis access that we've seen these. I mean, people have sent us the letter they've received from the Illinois state police saying like, look, you can't get this firearm. Your sales denied because of X, Y, and Z. And so I know it might be another thing that's out of your purview, but I just wondered like, since you work with these different agencies, is there a way we could be like, Hey, stop fucking sharing that information or like, not, you know, I just feel like it's unfair because you look at a future that has private uh, universal background checks, which I think is agreeable, you know, and I know this is a topic we don't normally co- cover on the Chillinois podcast, but that what that would effectively mean is that there's a federal background check for every firearm purchase, which means effectively in the state of Illinois, medical cannabis patients couldn't purchase firearms either from a store or privately. And I just like, do you know anything about that at all? Like how that data is shared or if I'm even on the right track, I could be wrong, you know? So it's, there are a couple of things swirling through my mind. The first one, like the flag that's going off or the siren going off my head is you're pointing out an issue. Like you're talking about the state police and the guns and things like that. But what I'm hearing you say really that you're not really saying is that because this is federally illegal, that often when you have to enter it face with the federal government, it impacts people in a way that we don't always think about. You're talking about purchasing a gun. I'm thinking about if you live in public housing, um, you know, which is federally funded, or if you are, if you, depending on your immigration status. So the thing that I'm hearing as you're talking is just this big thing that always plays in my mind, which is what are the implications of having something that's legal here in the state, but is federally illegal. And so I don't know all the details about what exactly you're talking about, but I, I think it's one of the, and we could list a litany of things. Those are the ones that just pop in my head that impact people who are trying to uh, do something here 
but they have federal implications and accuse yeah. people from doing it. Um, so no, I, I can't say I'm intimately, I know all the details of this federal, these federal rules, but I do know that there are people who may want to use cannabis who live in public housing or, um, or cultivate cannabis that live in public housing and have that card. And because of, like you say, federal restrictions, that's actually a really brilliant, um, that's a, like on the similar side of the coin. I didn't really think about. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I'm sorry. I don't know all the details of the gun thing, but also the, the, the part you were saying about the state police and, and the sharing of information, the databases. So working for the inspector general, the first thing that comes to mind is the experience I've had around what databases are shared and that's not from this part, this job. So I'm, I was kind of going a couple of jobs back and thinking, yeah, you're right. These all of these uh, institutions share information. I think that's a, a very normal practice. And um, I don't know if the state police would say, no, we don't we won't share. I think these databases are also connected in ways that we may not know and understand. So it may not even be a mechanism of saying, hey, we won't share this with you. Um, so I think. Um, you and I were talking about it's not exactly the same, but just how individual people are impacted by this work and how they only think about themselves. Um, and so we're talking about the person trying to go and buy a gun. I'm thinking about the person in the public housing or the person with an immigration status. However, this work impacts you. The fact that this is federally illegal is a big deal, which is why you've heard me talk about the work I've done on a national level to try to push for legalization um, or at the very least decriminalization, because I understand the intersectionality of the fact that people could live here but still interface with the federal government. Um, so no, I don't have a direct answer about what the state police can and cannot do, but I hear you. And to me, the bigger issue is how can we work to support the federal government into making changes legislatively to regarding cannabis? Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately at the end of the day, that's, that's the problem is the federal law. I, it's just the response I've gotten back from Illinois state police, which we'll, we'll move on. They're like, well, it's federal law. And it's like, okay, but you're the Illinois state police. Isn't your job to uphold state law? Like, what does that have to fucking do? But anyways, we'll, we'll move on. Cause I get, I, I didn't think that you, you know, necessarily would have uh, an answer on that one. So, okay. So big news in the Illinois, well, in the cannabis industry at large um, to, to switch topics um, Cresco Labs has acquired Columbia Care uh, through a merger and acquisition. And my question is, um, I've seen that they've made public statements that we have to divest licenses and stuff. I'm just curious, what role do you or is it with IDFPR? Because you mentioned they do licenses. Um, what role do they play in overseeing the transfer of licenses in, that, when companies make an acquisition, which put them over the cap? Like, how does the process work? Like I'm Cresco. I just acquired these licenses. Do I have to tell you anything or are you reaching out to me? Cause you just got the notification that I like, what, how does it work? So first let's say the thing that you kind of say, it has nothing to do with me in regards to like my everyday work. Uh, but this is a conversation, like your literal question is what I would say to IDFPR. What's your process? Walk me through how that process is. Is it on the website? Is it clear? Da, da, da. How do people inter interface with you around transfers? That's my job. How do we make this easier for the company, whether it's a social equity person or not to make this transfer? 
And same question you asked, do you reach out? Do you not? So that's really my job. You made a great, I just want to point out that that's a really good example of what I would do. I do not get into the middle of this particular situation, but want to make it so that when anybody wants to transfer, especially these social equity people coming on, that they have everything they need and it's easy peasy. Um, and then a the deeper question is, do we have enough staff to do all these transfers and how do we get them? So that's my job. I just want to make, this is a great point to kind of separate, to separate it out. Um, I will tell you that I won't get in the weeds of how this all works, but I do believe that they would have to contact the agency and let them know that they need to make a transfer. It is, I believe, the agency's responsibility by statute to make sure that they don't own more than they are supposed to. And so I, I do know that, sure, we read the news, but we don't regulate by the articles we read and grown in, you know? So yes, you would have to make those transfers. We would have to continue to do our work and make sure that you don't have more licenses than you're supposed to. But yeah. that's, that's kind of the, the answer. Yeah. Shout out to the folks at grown in too. I liked that. Um, anyways, uh, they're good friends of the podcast. So, um, cool. Well, that's, that's interesting. I, you mentioned there, is there a website? Like, is there a website that you can see who holds licenses and such? No, I, I was going to say that's a plug for consolidation because it, you would have to go to the agency that you're dealing with. So if you're talking about dispensaries, then you would have to go to IDFPR's website, go to their cannabis page and figure out whatever you're looking for. If you want to know about the agriculture side, you got to go to ag. So that's one of the pluses of having a commission or an agency that's responsible for this work, you could just go there. We're trying to, and we have been since I took this job, trying to have a one-stop shop on cannabis on a website, and then it can link to all the agencies. And I've been working on that for a while, and hopefully that, that will come out soon. You saw the Instagram, so that will continue to build out, and hopefully it will, it will end up being one website. But no, as of right now, I cannot say that I know for sure that IDFPR has someplace on their website or ag where they have every licensee listed they may but i'm not 100 percent sure of that um so that i can't say that for 100 percent certainty gotcha yeah and the reason i asked that i thought i might be wrong but i thought that it was in statute that there would have to be some form of disclosure for ownership but i didn't know like where well i don't i don't I don't know where, are you asking me where in the statute? I was saying, I thought you were going to say, you don't know exactly where you would find that because it could be revenue who posts that. Yeah. Just yeah. I don't know. And so I didn't know. Um, I didn't know if I was even on the right track. Like if, if they had to disclose and if there'd be a portal and then I was even going to start to get into the weeds of like percentage ownership limit. And if there's like a threshold in which you don't have to disclose, like, I don't know. 5%. Are you aware of, um, yeah. So to your point, I don't know that any of that information is public, but I do know that if the agency is required by statute to make sure that there are percentages of ownership that are not exceeded, that there is someone on staff who evaluates that typically at the renewal period um, or at the point of transfer, which is why transfers take more time than people like. It's taken us months to complete transfers often. And it's because I think sometimes when people think of a cannabis company, they think like, you own it, just you. But actually there are 20, 30 people involved. You were just talking about the percentages of ownership. There's so much evaluation that has to come into play to make a transfer like that. And it takes a lot of time. So um, 
I can't tell you where it is on the website or if it's even on the website, but I can look into that and get back to you and ask, you know, to, to kind of get to the bottom of that for you about whether or not that's public. Another yeah. thing the statute says is that we can't really disclose too much information that's, that will help you to know um, private company information. Like for example, you know, sometimes I have a, a two researchers or data people on my team and I have so much I want to learn and then make public, but then often I'll, I'll say, okay, do it by a county. And they're like, well, there's only one company in the county. You would be disclosing all their information. Um, and I want to do that around diversity, equity, inclusion, but that's one of the limitations of the statute. I can't. So um, if you don't see a lot of things online, that could be the reason the statute itself calls that we can't give out um, inf certain information um, that would basically allow you to know exactly which company we're talking about and because our industry is so small because a lot of the companies are spread out um, uh, sometimes the things we might be interested in putting in uh, would just tell you way too much you know one place you can look that I would recommend are our annual reports so each agency is responsible for putting out an annual report and one thing I'd like to see when we have a one website is having all of their uh, annual reports you can look to their annual report to see where they are and, and who and what the companies look like and all the information that we can disclose are in the annual report so I can have my team send you an annual report for IDFPR and AG and IDPH. The one about IDPH I love is you can see the patients and how the patients have grown and things like that. And I want to continue to see how it grows over time. One thing we talk about nationally is whether the patient population. All right, Chillinois. Well, a Zoom call wouldn't be complete without a few technical issues. Uh, we're back, though. Uh, my apologies, Uh Daniel was saying something so brilliant that the power company cut her out. So no, I'm just joking. Welcome back, Danielle. Um, we were talking about, um, I don't remember exactly what you were talking about, but I know we were talking about like the portal and disclosures and you said you might be getting back to me on that. So I think we kind of wrapped up that conversation right about when the power went out. Would you say? Yeah. I, did, I didn't know if you had anything else to say on it. So Cool. Well, I feel like we've almost gotten through all of my questions, uh, which is exciting because we're at the top of our time. Wanted to be mindful of that. This next question might be one uh, that, you know, we might need follow up on again. It's very much in vain of the, uh, la the last question that I had for you about um, refunds and, or sorry, returns and refunds. I think that was the language used in the the whatever I was citing. Um, I was reading about the the medical cannabis law and the fact that seeds may be sold at dispensaries. That's the language that is, that's how the language reads. Um, and they may be purchased by medical cannabis dispensaries uh, or medical cannabis patients. Um, now I asked, um, I've been asking around and you know, basically the response I've gotten, and I can't remember who I got it from. I'm showing a, a tweet exchange between Bob Morgan and myself, but the, I can't remember who I got this response from, but they basically said the language reads that they may provide the seeds to dispensary, but there's no further language detailing or outlining the process and how to do that, or even how to label them and tag them into Biotrack for retail purposes. So it says it's okay, but there's no real wording or structure. And so Bob Morgan said, and I've got my Zoom thing in the way here, that's accurate. The state needs to implement a process for seeds to be sold because right now dispensaries only sell static slash packaged items. There are a bunch of questions about seed 
seeds, but I know the state's looking into the issue. Do you know anything about this specific topic? No, Representative Morgan is correct. Um, there has been a lot of conversation ab- around seeds and what the process would look like and how to build it out. I, I've not been intimately involved in those conversations, but I know that they have been had and are continuing to be had. So I can give you an update. I can look into it and try to get to the bottom of it. But but yes, I know that it's a discussion that, that has been happening ever even since I started. I can remember when I first started in 2020 that there were um, companies who were interested in getting the seeds going. And so I can look into it for you and for everybody, make sure that we make the information public. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Thank you, by the way. Um, So the last question I have, and I, I think this is because it's the Illinois department of it's IDFPR. It's all these, these people that you oversee. So I don't know that you can directly answer this one either, but I'm just curious because I helped uh, Tom Shuba and Stephanie Zimmerman in an investigation they did into Illinois cannabis. And one of the articles that they wrote, it's like a series of articles, but one of the articles they wrote was the headline is Illinois cannabis regulation, moldy weed, but no consumer alert or recall. And they basically just pointed out that the IDFPR, which regulates state licensed dispensaries, never told the public state officials told retailers they could initiate a voluntary recall, but left it up to state, uh, left it up to the stores. But later it does say by statute, here it is again. Right. You know, cause a lot of these things that people complain about, it's like, well, we're doing it by the statute. And this is kind of the, one of the main points I wanted to bring make while bringing you on this show. There's a lot of people that are, they have misdirected anger, you know, is that a good way of, do you think that's a good way of capping it? So anyways, the agency is prohibited from disclosing the details of specific investigations by the uh, CRTA and its rules, according to an agency spokes, spokesperson. Um, I mean, I guess that's, that is what it is. There's not really uh, anything we can do about the law, but, but is that what it would take to, I guess my question is because you know, here's the question, right? Um, that's what it would take though, is like a law that would encourage that type of transparency. Like it's not like the state because the state is, I mean, this person, I don't know who the person is, but they say the agency is prohibited by the CRTA. So what that would require then is some sort of amendment. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, we've talked, I think you and I have kind of talked about this ad nauseum at this point um, is that, yeah, if we want to see things or processes look different, then we would have to make changes to the law. In this particular case, I remember when this happened, there was a lot of conversations around consumer protection and how, how, uh, how issues like this happen in the world every day. Like for example, if, if there was an issue with salmonella with some chicken you bought is it coming from the state that you bought it in? Is it coming from the federal government or is it coming from that company? And if you really think about our lives and the recalls that we've experienced, it's the company recalling the product. If it's your Toyota or your the lotion you bought, whatever it is, as I, as a human being, thought back about my life, it is actually correct that the consumer is usually receiving the recall notice from their 
the company and and not even necessarily the government agency itself. I will say as a regulator, that's something I had to learn and research a bit when all of this was happening, because, you know, that might be the gut reaction. Send them all messages. Um, but learning a little more about consumer protection, the process is typically that, a, that, that the state says, look, as a company, you are supposed to notify. But also, I think um, when you talk about that, and I won't go too deep into this, but when you talk about the headline itself and the moldy weed and all of the the claims of mold that people found and they were taking it to laboratories and saying that it didn't meet the standards, I think that there were so many things lost in there. And it's yet another thing where whatever somebody reports is the law or is exactly what it is, even if it's untrue, even if we tested it and we found that the levels of mold were not higher than the state standard. If we found that to be the case, and we always say that that's our standard, we went to our state laboratories and that's the case, whether I found that or not, that doesn't change whether somebody's gonna write an article and say, they found a laboratory that does think that the, the percentage is high. Um, we test at so many different levels of the process. Uh, we test from seed to sale, we look for mold at every level. Um, and we even do some investigations of when we go into dispensaries and check to see what's on the shelves. But yes, I mean, there are a number of things that could be changed when you think about this. It's not just who who receives notice, but even shelf lifetimes. If you wanted to change shelf, shelf lifetimes, that would be a legislative change as well. So I think these conversations are often deeper than is, than is reported out. And um, I think this is yet another example of that. But to yeah. your point, Yes, I do think if there were some changes right now in Illinois around how this process plays out, it would be legislative. Yeah. And I think one of the important points highlighted in the article is that Illinois has some of the strictest rules in the nation for cannabis safety and quality with cannabis required to pass tests for mold yield, yeast, bacteria, and other contaminants that are much tougher than those in many states. Some states don't require testing at all, um, you know, and, and, in in the article, I think one of the things they pointed out that, that was interesting was that some of the weed that they, you know, look, I know uh, I, hear, I hear what you just said, but some of the weed that they tested, they one of the things I thought was interesting was that they pointed out is that it would still be on the shelves in other states. Speak, so that's kind of speaking to um, uh, the strictest rules in the nation for cannabis safety and quality, you know, uh, products that you might find on other in other, sorry, on the shelves in other states, you wouldn't find in Illinois uh, dispensaries because of those uh, thresholds. So, well, Danielle, um, we are at the top of our time. I want to be mindful of your time, uh, but I also want to give you uh, an opportunity. Uh, if there's any ground you feel we didn't cover today, is there anything else that, um, you know, uh, you'd like to be able to say, um, Oh, I guess I do have uh, another question, but I still want to give you a quick question, I guess. But I wanted to give you an opportunity to, um, yeah, if there's any ground we didn't cover today. No, I think you, I will say this. What I loved about this is that it was, in fact, a conversation. It wasn't necessarily me accusing you of anything, you accusing me of anything. You uh, gave me an opportunity to talk about the work that we've been able to do here and what we have been able to get done. 
So we talk, let me talk about equity as much as I want it, which is something I'm really passionate about, um, but not just equity in this like really small version of it, which is the licenses that are in litigation, but equity in like every sense of the word and all the work that we do and the standards that we have set in this country that you can't just legalize cannabis and make money from it and not go back into the communities that were most impacted by the criminalization of this same plant. And so I appreciate you giving me space to talk about that. I don't ever want to make it seem like everything is perfect here and that we don't want to change. I want to continue to see this industry grow. I want to see more license types. I want to see the diversity of the industry continue to increase, that people can compete and be a part of this process, that they can be capitalized. Um, as we grow, that equity stay at the forefront, that it not be just something we did in the beginning, but that it's something we do for a lifetime. So I appreciate you giving me space to talk about it. I have done these before and the article will come out and they'll say like, one line is, oh, yeah, they have some people of color in the industry. And the whole thing is about the dispensary licenses. And it it breaks my heart because I think you miss all of the work that is happening and can happen across this country if you make a bigger stink about all the equity measures that are happening and that we can continue to make happen. So I just appreciate you giving me space to, to do that and to just chat about it. So I really is a thank you. I appreciate you. And yeah. I'm happy to at any time um i think you know a lot of times it's just that people don't know and don't understand and so i appreciate you giving me space to to start the conversation at this point and, and for us to keep building it out yeah and i like i said i think this will be the first of many and you know i would agree there might be a soundbite or two that comes out of this podcast but folks that uh, know this podcast and know the nature of podcasts will check it out and hear it in their full breadth. That's at least my hope. And, uh, you know, they'll hear that you have the space to explain some of these things. Uh, that's really unfortunate though. I do have to just my personal commentary that, yeah, that things like that will occur, but that's why I love this show because, you know, we just sat down for two hours and, and we had that conversation and, and, it's much better than trying to do it on TV with those strict time periods and every and everything else. So um, I really, I really appreciate your time. Um, and I did, I did have one last question that I neglected to ask. Do you, do you have any, like the, like in your oversight work, like what's, what's going on right now with the Illinois medical cannabis program? Um, is like, I know there was that, just that cha change to the portal is like every smooth sailing or like, I've heard, I've heard issues from physicians. I don't know if the, I've not talked to them in a while that like issues that persisted. So I didn't know if like still a work in progress or like, if you have anything to share on that front. Still a work in progress, still trying to make it better so that patients can use the portal. Um, actually, one thing that we're working on that's big for the medical cannabis program. So one, we do a working group first Wednesday of every month for medical patients. And we just talk about issues that they're experiencing and how we can make this a better process for them. So that's the first plug. I love that we're having a space for them to come in, but we're not seeing a lot of patients. So um, if you're interested, just email us at fpr.crew, C-R-O-O, at illinois.gov, and we'll make sure you get invited to the the working groups. But one of the things we're doing is when you pulled up that memo about representative Morgan's bill, one of the things said that there would be a medical cannabis board and under Rauner, that board was completely eliminated. So the board that's supposed to provide um, new conditions or ailments that would be approved 
for a medical patient to participate in our program and receive cannabis, none of, none of, no additional conditions have been done because uh, Governor Rauner eliminated it. So one thing that Governor Pritzker is doing is giving a, like a rebirth to that board. So right now we're looking for physicians and nurses and patients and caregivers to join that board so that we can get it back up and running and there could be an evaluation of whether or not there are more conditions that should be added to the list. I'm very passionate about that work. I appreciate that we have a governor who wants to give uh, rebirth to it and life to it rather than kill it. And um, I, right now, we are looking for physicians and people to join that board. So if you know of people or people hear this podcast, again, email us at fpr.crew at illinois.gov and give your recommendations. We want to make sure we diversify that board, that it's not, when you hear diversity, it's not just racial diversity, but of gender. And uh, especially I want to see people from across this state. So downstate, up, you know, closer up to the line for Wisconsin. We want to make sure we are not just Chicago heavy. So please, you know, contact us. We want to add you to that board. So that's another thing I will give a shout out to. We have not seen it. That's what I was saying when the lights went off. We have not seen a significant decrease in the number of people who are in our medical program because of legalization. And I think that's partially because we have a robust program here. Um, uh, but two, we added a condition right before legalization. So the number of people, you know, increased significantly uh, with the addition of, I think, uh, chronic pain. So I, I do think if we continue to add more L conditions and do more outreach to make sure that patients feel prioritized as legalization is happening. Um, and also one thing that's important to me is that we do outreach in communities that typically don't access our patient program. You don't see that it's an extremely diverse group of people. Um, and, and I think we could do a better job of that and education on the physician side. Now that I've been you know, trying to get physicians added to the board, you meet so many people who are very uh, clueless to this patient program and the work that we're doing here. So I'd, I'd like to see us grow our outreach and education on that side as well so that we can continue to have a robust patient program because other states like us have seen a significant decrease in their patient program once legalization happened. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to be honest. I think one of the reasons it's still floating too is because it's a weird thing. I was thinking I was super high the other day and I was thinking about it. It's like, why does the Illinois Department of Health tell me I can cultivate cannabis? Like, it's an interesting uh, idea that if you just have a conversation with your doctor about a condition you may qualify for, that it is one of the few ways that you can just pay and get the right to cultivate cannabis in Illinois. I mean, we just had this extensive conversation about how to get licensed to cultivate cannabis. This is, of course, for home uh, home cultivation, home, you know, personal consumption. Um, but yeah, I, I truly believe that that plays a, a large part in it too, because, um, frankly, that's another example where we didn't really, uh, improve, uh, you know, or at least see substantial reform in our law. The fact that people can still be criminalized for cultivating or as a result, again, possession limits, when you start cultivating the fucking, <laughs> the results are endless with regard to your, what you're going to end up with, you know, if you're good at planting, but we're over our time. Um, uh, so thank you so much again for your time. I'll reach out to you again in the future. I'd love to have you on the show. Um, we were working out, we're trying to make this happen in person. Maybe we can make that happen uh, next time. Um, so that, so that zoom doesn't cut us off or something, you know? So thank you for your time today, Daniel. 
Anytime. I appreciate it. Um, I would say like last words, we're not done yet. This is just the beginning. Uh, I think we're going to, you're going to continue to see us grow and be one of the biggest and, and most equitable States in this country. So, uh, don't give up this with, this is just the beginning. Yep. And one last time before you go, you can follow, uh, the CROO, which is a position position that's currently fulfilled by Danielle on Instagram at CROO official. We'll have that handle in the podcast description. We'll also put the, if you guys aren't on Instagram, we'll put the email address, uh, for the CROO. If you have any questions that they would be able to answer. Um, so, yeah. All right. Well, uh, Chillinois, I hope you found value in this podcast and we will see you next time. Thanks. So I've typed up an email to the office of the CROO. I'm displaying it on my screen right now. And this email includes all the questions that Daniel was not able to answer during our conversation. It also includes questions that I frankly wasn't able to ask that, that I didn't have enough time to ask and I'd like to uh, have an answer on. And so for, for folks that are listening, the questions that I wasn't able to ask have to do with a disparity and demand study and also a social equity study that I've heard her mention in public in the past. So I meant to ask her about these studies and when we can expect the results and what those results could mean. Um, but I, you know, just frankly didn't have enough, uh, enough time. I know, right. I sat down with her for two hours, but we had a lot of ground to cover. And frankly, two hours is uh, just not enough time to cover all the ground that, that I wanted to cover. So um, look forward to the next time I sit down with Danielle. And if you have any uh, questions for Danielle, just we forward them to us and we can facilitate them or feel free to reach out directly to Danielle um, at F uh, we'll, we'll throw her email address in the show notes for this podcast episode. So I'm not even going to try to spell it out right now. Just look in the show notes. If you want to contact Danielle in the office of the CROO directly, and uh, they can answer any questions that you have. Thank you once again for tuning into this episode of the Chillinois podcast. And if you're able and willing, please go to chillinois.net slash support and make your contribution to support our podcast. It costs a lot to do what we do and to uh, distribute our content and get all the equipment that's uh, required to capture our content. So if you're able to contribute any amount, any amount helps, everything helps. So um, take care. We hope you found value in this episode of the Chillinois podcast and stay tuned. We've got a lot more headed, headed your way, uh, a lot of substantive stuff. So thanks for listening. Take care.